Good morning, church family. So glad you're here this morning. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Psalm 40. And you know, I was thinking as we were worshiping our Lord together in song, that the very best singing is born of experience. I mean, who can sing praises to the Lord like those who have experienced his grace, like those who have experienced his forgiveness, his mercy, his patience. The best singing is born from experience, and we've noticed that, I trust, as we have worked our way through uh, some of book one of the Psalms, sort of a, a David's greatest hits, if you will. Um, why is David for ancient Israel, but also for us today, such a beloved songwriter? Well, it, it's because he sings from his own experience with our God, who is the Ancient of Days. David sings in Psalm 1 of the blessing that comes to one who is deeply rooted in God. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Remember that one? He knew firsthand that to be rooted in God was to be like one who lived in a world that is a desert and yet be planted right next to living water. And he sings of God's wonders in Psalm 8. You have set your glory above the heavens. Who better than David to know? Because he'd spent many clear nights lying on his back, staring into the clear eastern sky, awestruck at the Lord's handiwork. And why was he lying on his back outside so often? Well, it's because he'd been a shepherd boy, hadn't he? And so David sings in Psalm 23 of the protection and the provision of the good shepherd for his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, because David knew from experience that tender, loyal relationship with God himself. The very best songs are born from experience. I want you to think about your experience with God this morning. Has he, has he put a song or two on your lips? And we find in Psalm 40, and you've, you've had ample time to get there now, haven't you? We, we find in Psalm 40 yet another song born from real-life experience. So let's just try to put ourselves in David's sandals here as we read beginning in verse 1. He sings, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. 
Many, O Lord, my God, are your wondrous works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been stuck? David writes of being stuck, doesn't he? He sings of being stuck in a horrible pit, hopelessly held captive, unable to get out on his own. He's stuck in miry clay. That clay is like a a claw that has a strong grip on him. He can't go back and he can't go forward. His only hope is up, right? His only hope is God. And so he, he cries out to God in despair, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits upon the Lord. I I wonder if if any among us today are stuck, and you've been waiting, and waiting, and waiting on the Lord. David, sing in your song. And if you are, do you not see here That God is loyal to his own. And he inclines himself to his children like David. And pulls David up out of the muck and the mess. And he sets his servant's feet on solid ground once more. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. What a joyful rescue is being remembered here. And to what effect? Look at the next verse. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. You see, the the best songs are, are born of experience. What is your experience thus far with God in your life? Do you sing of it? And what I mean by that is, do you live the kind of life that speaks of the faithfulness of your God, the loyal love of God for his own, for his people? Because every time God rescues his people, he writes a new song of praise for his loyal love. So how many songs do you have within you? Songs for your king. And those among us who are stuck, stuck in some despair, uh, stuck in feeling helpless, maybe feeling hopeless, 
as we wait on the Lord, do so with confidence because that new song of praise is being written right now. This is the workshop where future praise toward God is made. Private rescue is meant to produce public praise. Did you know that? It's not just between you and God. Look at, look at verse 3 again. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. How will others grow in reverence toward God? How will others see what it is and get a sense of the fragrance of trust in the Lord? God's faithfulness to me, God's faithfulness to you is meant to be a testimony to others. Parents, think about this. Does your life sing to your children of God's loyal love? Do they hear that? As as they watch mom and dad or grandma and grandpa? Church, do our lives sing to our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates of God's loyal love for his people? Or do we live and speak in ways that leave room for doubt? How will others be led to put God at the center of their lives, do you suppose? How will others uh, place their confidence in his saving power when the lips of God's people remain silent? The kingdom of God grows to the tune of his faithfulness to his people. That means you and I are meant to live out in the wide world in everyday life with praise to God on our lips. With specific examples of his faithfulness, his loyalty to his people. Now I want us to focus um, on this business of being stuck for a few moments. Um, is one of the things I got stuck on, and so here we all are stuck on it. Uh, we, we know all about being stuck, don't we? We know what it is to be stuck in fear, uh, stuck in anxiety. Uh, some of you uh, know what it is to be stuck in discontentment, uh, stuck in bad habits, uh, stuck in messed up relationships. Is it personal enough yet? Should we keep going? Stuck in sin. You're stuck this morning? Your conscience speaking to you yet about that? In verse 2, David once again is singing our song. He says, I I was in a horrible pit. I I was in the the miry clay. And, And we don't know what specific circumstance David is singing about. More than likely, surely he's speaking figuratively, not literally. Maybe he sings of being stuck in the the, the fear and anxiety that he felt when Saul was hunting him down, seeking to kill him. That That would cause you to be anxious, wouldn't it? I mean, how could you not be stuck in anxiety with with somebody with a big army showing them your picture? And pointing emphatically, right? 
Maybe David sings of being stuck in discouragement or despair, depression even. So many of the Psalms we run to when we're feeling these very things. I think it's a blessing that we don't know David's specific circumstances in Psalm 40 any more than we know the Apostle Paul's circumstances when he speaks of the thorn in his flesh. Because God's remedy then becomes good medicine for all of our stuckness, whatever it is. And what can be said of our stuckness, do you suppose? And yes, I know that's not a word. It's just a word for now, okay? Just for today. Sometimes the miry clay we're stuck in is a clay we've produced ourselves. We've been mixing it day by day with the way that we live our lives. And sometimes the clay has things in it like spiritual apathy and addiction and and self-pity and even worries sometimes can be manufactured from within. Do you realize that? I have a friend who worries when he doesn't have anything to worry about. Because you just know something's going to go down, right? But how many of you know sometimes we, we find ourselves stuck in circumstances that are just God's wise providence for his children? We didn't pick those circumstances, but we didn't manufacture them ourselves either. The pit is not always one we dug for ourselves. Either way, what are we to do? Well, David sings, I waited patiently for the Lord. I want you to just think with me about that word waited. In the Hebrew, the verb to wait is repeated for emphasis. In other words, this literally would read, in my waiting, I waited for the Lord. What is meant by that? Waiting on God is not merely the passing of time. Don't think of it that way. It's a fervent, earnest expectation in God. A resignation to trust in God alone. To rest in God's own timing, God's own means of of deliverance. That's that's what it is to wait upon the Lord. Listen, you and I can wait in a way that wastes time. Anybody know anything about that? I mean, some of us have entire chapters in our lives where we think, good heavens, I wasted the wait. Lots of people do that. They don't expect God to move. They're not trusting in him alone. They'll not await his timing nor seek his means. Well, they're waiting in the sense that time is passing. No trouble with that. But they try everything they can do in their own strength, according to their own wisdom, imagining they can do what they've asked God to do. And it's a shame we can't relate to such people, isn't it? That's not the kind of waiting David is singing about here. He is waiting expectantly 
from one who has experienced the loyal love of God for his people, for himself. He waits for the Lord, his shepherd, to move. And if, and if we're to learn from David anything, let, let's learn this. Those who wait on the Lord serve him in the pit, even as they're crying to be yanked out of the pit. That's waiting on the Lord. Think about that even in the English vernacular. Who do you call the person who comes to your table at a restaurant and serves you? A waiter. That's weird, isn't it? Someone who serves, someone who functions on the agenda of another. I waited patiently for the Lord, sings David, and he inclined to me. David knows God as a loving father, a loyal father, a wise and faithful father who is attentive to the cries of his children. Not unlike moms and dads in this room, they, they, all of us know what it is to hear a kid cry. But there's something about the cry of our kid, right? Please affirm this, all right? Be a good parent, all right? Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn to lies. What is he talking about? We're not waiting on the Lord if at the same time we're trusting in ourselves. How many of you know somebody really well who's so prone to say, yeah, I'm praying about it, but I think I pretty much got it covered. I've done this one before, so I don't even need to pray about it. Oh, my. We're not waiting on the Lord if at the same time we're living by lies. Some of you right now are living by lies. No offense. It's just, it is what it is. God wants me to be happy. So I'm going to pray about it, but I'm going to do what makes me happy because I really think that's what God wants. <clears throat> Notice that David, re are you still listening? Yes. Notice that David remembers his heart cry to Yahweh in a time of great distress and great hopelessness, and that one remembrance calls to mind another and then another. And then another after that. In verse 5, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak them, they are more than can be numbered. Wow. Who is this us he's referring to? Of whom can it be said, God's thoughts are too numerous to count. Well, well, it's God's elect people, isn't it? His church. Those who put their trust in the Lord. Think about this. The creator of all things, the God who sustains all things, who keeps the stars in their place, if you will, nonetheless thinks continually about each one of his kids. Each one of his children. He's not too busy. He's not too distant. 
He's not distracted by the needs of other children. Each one of us is on God's mind. When? Always. When does God's mind wander away from you? Never. Not ever. Do you realize, Christian, that God's thoughts of you existed long before you were born? You ever think about that? It hurts your head to think about such things. They're wonderful. They're just wonderful. Long before your parents or your grandparents or their grandparents were born, God thought of you. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God thought of each of his children before the world was even created and chose then to pour out his love upon his people in Christ. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, welcome to the club. It's too wonderful for us, isn't it? But what a blessing it is to meditate on this loyal love of God. And some of you are looking at me like, well, what what in the world does that have to do with Psalm 40? Well, as it turns out, everything. Because in Psalm 40, when we get to verse 6, we enter into a part of David's song in which his voice fades, and the voice of the greater David now takes the lead part. This is to do with Jesus. This is a song of our Savior, our King. And Psalm 40 is another one of those overtly messianic psalms. It it sings to us of Christ. It's it's the Lord's anointed. It's Yahweh's Christ who is in view in verse 6. And let me just tell you what I mean by that. There is a type of stuckness that is eternally consequential to every person in this room. And that is our problem, isn't it, from birth? Stuck in sin. Not not just the sin we see in the world around us, and there's a lot of it. But we're stuck in this world of sin within us. And, and, And the reality of this stuckness is that it's, it's personal to you and it's personal to me. And you and I, we, we might be tempted to think that somehow we can make amends for it. We can work our way out of this pit. And yet the scriptures come to us again and again, do they not, and remind us that we are stuck and hellbound apart from outside rescue. This is a horrible pit. This is the most miry clay. And there is no help within the person stuck. Any help must come from outside. 
Look at verse 6 again. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. What What a strange verse this is. God himself had ordained the sacrifices and offerings that David is singing about. And those sacrifices were to do with the sin problem experienced by the people of God. The the, the Bible is a bloody book, isn't it? Especially the Old Testament and its record of all of those sacrifices. So how can David, who himself would have offered sacrifices, how can David sing about God not desiring sacrifices and offerings from his people. This is a strange verse. And it's perfectly fine to get to a verse in Scripture and say at least to yourself, that's strange. I wonder what this is about. Maybe I should squeeze this one a little bit. Listen, the sacrifices in the Old Testament record were never given by God as an end within themselves. In other words, the blood of all of those animals did not remove guilt for sin. Those sacrifices simply foreshadowed a future atonement that was to come, a a real and final removal of guilt for sin. And it was to come through Christ You see, God had covenanted with his his chosen people, messed up people like Adam and Eve and and Abel and and Noah and Job and Abraham and Moses and, and Joshua and King David. Those blood offerings in all of their various forms as that system develops throughout the Old Testament simply foreshadowed the ultimate display of God's loyal love for his people In Jesus Christ. So every time a sacrifice was made, God was saying, listen, you cannot get yourself unstuck from sin. You cannot get yourself outside the hellish grip of this miry clay. Only I can get you unstuck. And every offering foreshadowed this promised rescue from God. Well, what happened? Well, what happened, as you know, is people back then were just like people today. What, what did they do? They, they, they began to function as if all of those religious rituals in and of themselves kept them square with God. As long as I do this religious stuff, God and I are fine. And some of you might Lord bless you, be thinking that way today. As long as I go to the building with a cross on it, three out of four weeks in a month, God and I are square. No. That was the problem with Cain's sacrifice, by the way, wasn't it? His offering was rejected by God because it was given in disloyalty. It was given dispassionately, if you will, outside of love for God. It was just going through the motions. How do you know? Well, his murderous heart 
not only toward his brother, but toward God himself, was soon revealed, wasn't it? History's first murder was done by a religious guy against another religious guy. That's what David means when he sings then, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Just going through the motions of some religious ritual friend. Apart from a loyal heart toward God. Apart from trust in the Lord. Leaves you in the pit. You've just dressed it all up in religion is all. And how many of you know hell will be full of religious people? My ears you have opened, the psalmist sings. Have, have your ears been opened to this truth? Are you hearing this? God doesn't want your religious activities. He wants you. All of you. And God is neither blessed nor impressed with your going through the motions as a church person. He's come to claim your heart, your soul. You still with me? I got stuck on this ear thing. So here we, here we go. Um, my ears you have opened. That, that's another verse where I stopped and said, well, that's, that's, that's weird. What is that? It, it turns out the word opened in Hebrew means bored. B-O-R-E-D, as in drilled. Who gets their ears bored or drilled? Don't answer that. That used to be a rhetorical question. It isn't anymore. Um, but, but here's the thing. In, in, in ancient Israel, listen, every jubilee year, servants in Israel were to be set free. Imagine what a glad time that was. All those servants set free from their bondage. But if a servant loved his master and that servant wanted not to live for himself but to live for his master forever the rest of his life then that master could take that servant and bore a hole in his earlobe and everyone would know that person was that master's servant willingly voluntarily for the rest of his life, for the rest of her life. And who did that? Well, not David. Didn't God the Son in humility stoop low from heaven to be a bond slave willingly to the Father for his people? So verse 6 sings to us of Christ. God the Son who knew you from eternity past was born into time, born into humanity. It came to be the willing slave of the Father. The, 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 the glad bond slave of the Father to win your rescue. To get you out of the horrible pit. 
to, to, to pull you away from the grasp of the miry clay. And Jesus came to buy you out of your eternal stuckness with his own blood on that cross. As we always see when we're in the scriptures, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, right? And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, affirms that Psalm 40 is all to do with Jesus, the, the greater David. Listen to Hebrews 10.5. Therefore, when he, God the Son, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. That is a direct quote from Psalm 40. And some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, it's not a direct quote because I just noticed a pretty key difference. One talks about an ear, the other one talks about a body, so what's the deal with that? Hebrews 10.5, a body you have prepared for me. Psalm 40, verse 6, my ears you have opened. What, what's going on here? Well, the, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40 from the Septuagint, the, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. My ears you have opened is translated as a figure of speech so that it refers to the whole body, not just the ears. Kind of like if when you were in, in um, peewee soccer or something and the coach said, hey, get your head in the game. He's not thinking, hey, like a Lego piece, you take your head off and, and toss it into the game. Get your whole body, your, your, your whole person into the game. So the Septuagint renders Psalm 40 and verse 6 in terms of a whole body, not just part of a body, the ears. Think of the, the broader meaning then for God's people, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God is given a human body in which to step into human experience, to step into this sin-stained world of ours, born into humanity as a willing bond slave of the Father to serve his people. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And you know, I've been thinking about this body thing. And as I wonder whether you see your need for this Jesus, this bond slave of God who, who lived and died and rose again for his people, if, if, if you're not convinced, let me just put it to you this way. Do you realize, friend, that you also have been given a body? A body in which you are meant to live not for yourself, but for the glory of God. So we're just going to take a look at a typical body. Not in some weird way. But you and I were created to be Image bearers of God in our humanity. That's not some ethereal thing. And yet God looks down into humanity even today. Into the details of your life. Remember, his thoughts of you are constant. And he sees what you've done with the body prepared for you. 
You've been given a mouth to speak his truth and declare his praises. How often, I wonder, have you used it to lie and to curse and to gossip? You call it a prayer request, but it's gossip. Grumble and complain. Even to use his name loosely, which is to use his name in vain. What does God say about that? The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You see how stuck you are in sin? God sees the heart he gave you to love him with. And he sees how often and how much you love yourself more than him. How you love your own will and your own ways so much more than his perfect will and his good ways. How can your conscience not testify to that with respect to your own heart? God sees the mind he's given you so that you might think upon him. And think on that which is pure and perfect and lovely and just. Instead, you've used your mind so often to think on what is impure and unjust. Your mind, my mind, is meant to think first of others. And yet so often we think first of ourselves, don't we? Even even when we do think of others, we're preoccupied with how it feels for us, what's in it for us, how are we going to be perceived, all of that sort of thing. Do you see what a pit this is? Do you see how strong the clay's grasp is? And, and what does God say about all of this? The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. Should we keep going? What about our eyes? Anybody else in this room wish you could unsee stuff? Haven't we used our eyes again and again to look on what is sinful or maybe to look down upon others made in the image of God who just happen to be different from us? There's always the danger of this stuff being practical and and personal to you and to me. And God the Son looks at you and he looks at me and he sees it all. And what does he say to the Father? My ears you have opened. Father, I will come to be the willing slave, your servant. I will sacrifice myself. My blood will satisfy your wrath for their sin. Willingly he did that. I will pay the cost of their rescue. So they can be pulled from the horrible pit that is your eternal hell. And they can be rescued from the miry clay that is their sin. God's anointed, the king, sees all the ways that you and I distort the image of God in a man or a woman. And yet he says to the father, a body you have given me. Jesus came into this world, think about this, to do in his body every day what you fail to do in your body every day. 
live to the glory of God. And only that. How can you not have a song for this king? What does he say then to the hopelessness of your stuckness in sin and sin's hell? Well, Hebrews 10, 7, then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Again, a direct quote from Psalm 40, only this time it's not something anticipated. It's something that's happened. The, the son has come. Uh, the, the son has obeyed the will of the father. The son has served us as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. This whole book is to do with Christ. Look at my story, the psalmist says. This book, says your king, see for yourself, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. That means if we spend any amount of time in the Bible and we don't find Jesus, we haven't spent enough time in the Bible. It's all to do with him and his great love for his own. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. By that, by that sacrifice of Christ, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Think of the enormity of what God is saying to you here. Jesus is enough for you. It's not Jesus plus you doing God a solid. It's not Jesus plus your religious looking life. It's not Jesus plus your promises to do this and that and the other thing for God. It's Christ alone. His work is sufficient for all who trust in him. He needs no help from you in saving you. Did you know that? Do you know what you contribute to your salvation? Sin. You bring to the table the need to be saved. That's it. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen? So what do you do with all of this? Well, if the king is speaking to your heart this morning, run to him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Lest his wrath is kindled just a little. Blessed are those who seek shelter in him. And believers, to be sanctified is to be made holy, right? So to be sanctified is not merely to have escaped hell. To be sanctified is to be set apart from sin and to be set apart for God. This is now the trajectory of our lives, isn't it? We're being made more and more like our Savior Jesus. Kingdom people progressively look more and more like the king. And they're a glad bunch. Because we know how horrible the pit 
we've been pulled from. We know what it is to be aware of being stuck in the miry clay and to be rescued. Do you know that joy? I have proclaimed the good news of the righteousness, uh, excuse me, I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord. You yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Boy, those are our marching orders, aren't they? This is our experience, church. We are the great assembly. Some of your Bibles say congregation. Who's that talking about? The Israel of God through the ages. God's people. So David's song is also our song. A song to our king. Let Let me just end where we began. Every time God rescues his people, he writes a new song of praise to his loyal love. And it seems to me, based on the scripture we've just read, that it is the normative thing for God's people to declare his loyalty and his love to others. And I don't even think I'm going out on a limb here to suggest that it could happen on a day that's not a Sunday. (laughs) His covenant people, once stuck in sin, now eternally unstuck. Are you eternally unstuck? What a joy that is. Forever liberated. Free not to do what you once pleased in the flesh, but free now and enabled to live as God's image bearers on our way home. We have a great homecoming ahead of us. Yes, one day we will see face to face Jesus. Is there a greater vision of grace? Let's pray. Lord, we ask you for grace to have ears that are open to your truth. We ask you for grace not only to consider what we've done with this life that you've given to us, but even more so, Jesus, what you have done with the life you lived in your humanity for your people. We thank you, Jesus, for the beauty of your perfection. We thank you, Jesus, for the steadfastness of your love for us. That you would do for us what we cannot do. That you would atone for our sin. And that your body would not only be put to death, but placed in a tomb only to rise again in power. That we who belong to you might know that in our future there is a rising again in power. And Lord, I pray that the gladness of it all would often be on our lips. Lord, let us not be only Sunday singers, 
Lord, may we be, by your grace, those whose lives sing a song to our King. And we pray this, Jesus, for your namesake. Amen.